Today, I am super excited to have as our guest on Nun Talks, Mr. Pete Hall, who is a educator, classroom teacher, school administrator and principal, professional developer, and consultant. He has co-authored a number of books, including one of my favorites that we've referred to in Westwind as Fostering Resilient Learners, Strategies for Creating Trauma-Sensitive Classrooms. We will discuss that uh, with Pete Hall today. He is driven to impact others' lives in profoundly positive ways. He channels his experience as a school principal, life coach, small business owner into manageable lessons for continuous growth. I've had the opportunity to interact with him a number of times in other ways um, as we've invited him to be part of professional development in West Wind with all of our EAs as well as with a number of our schools across West Wind. We're excited to have Pete Hall join us today from Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Please enjoy our session on Nun Talks with Pete Hall. Well, I am super excited to um, have our guest today with us, uh, Pete Hall. And, and I was introduced to um, Pete by uh, Stacy Jacobs, who is a principal here in Westwind School Division at Carson Elementary. And she had the opportunity to uh, hear Pete speak. I think he did some professional development with her school. And so she introduced uh, um, Pete to me and we actually had him do a presentation to all of our educational assistants in Westwind um, and uh, around a topic that I'm sure he'll address today uh, around trauma, but uh, three R's. And so uh, welcome to our, our podcast here in Westwind, um, Pete, and we appreciate you being with us. And uh, we'll let you take some time to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your story. Well, thank you. I appreciate the introduction and it's good to be back. It's good to be back with you and your, your folks. Um, like you heard, my name is Pete and I guess the simplest introduction of me is that I'm just a guy. I'm a guy that has had some uh, pretty unique and special experiences in education and I feel fortunate that I have learned quite a bit from those and now I have the opportunity to share them. So I, from being a teacher all the way through being a principal and now uh, doing this work and, and traveling and and or zooming into places, kind of like the old Star Trek, right? I'm beaming into places to provide PD for folks. Um, I just I just love the opportunity to be kind of in the role of of teacher, of mentor, of capacity builder, and I'm I'm hopeful that anything that I might have to say is of benefit to you. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity and inviting me here to come and chat with you today. Awesome. So. Um, Tell us a little bit about your your journey in education that led you to this place where really wanting to understand uh, resilience and fostering. Uh, you have a book titled Fostering Resilient Learners um, and centers around trauma-informed practice in classrooms and trauma-sensitive classrooms. But just um, share with us your own journey in, in finding that that's a model to use in a classroom. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny, actually, how it happened, you know, in my perspective, because you know, I'd been a teacher and I'd been an uh, administrator, and I thought like I was doing a good job. I thought I was pretty good at connecting with kids and families and staff and uh, the community and, and, and doing all that work as a human being. And then as, as an elementary principal, 
One day I was invited to a principal's meeting at my district and you know about those. They're not really invitations. It's like, go to the meeting. So I went to the, the session and there was a speaker and the speaker's name was Kristen Sowers. And she was talking about childhood trauma. She was talking about how toxic stress impacts developing brain and how it uh, interferes with learning, interferes with teaching. And I, the whole time I had, I had gone into this and we were going to be talking about childhood trauma. And my first thought was, I don't want to talk about this. This I have things to do. We have test scores to raise and we've got curriculum to implement. I've got things to do. I don't have time to stop and talk about trauma. And as Kristen was talking, I thought, holy smokes, I think she's describing my school. This is exactly the information we need. So I immediately invited Kristen to come in and work with me and work with the staff at the school. And uh, she did what I think is remarkable work and really focused on the adults and our mindsets and the way that we approach our work. That makes so much difference. And that is that kind of goes contrary. And we'll probably talk about this more in a few minutes. That goes contrary to what most of us think of when we think of childhood trauma and stress and the things that kids are going through. We start immediately going to the place of, well, what can I do for this kid? And the reality is the best thing we can do is take care of ourselves and put ourselves in a position where we are square and we are regulated and we are feeling okay and we are open to possibilities because then we can have a tremendous impact. So long story short, uh, over the course of about eight, nine years, Kristen and I worked together in a couple different schools and has some tremendous impact as far as discipline numbers, as far as average daily attendance for students and for staff academic proficiency, you name it, pretty much any metric you could use to gauge the success of a school, uh, we got that. So then I, we had a conversation at uh, Subway Sandwich one day at lunch, Kristen and I, and I said, Kristen, you have all these great ideas and we've done this great work together. Would you be willing to write it, you know, write it down? She's like, what, in a blog? And I said, no, 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 in a book. We've got to write a book. What do you think? And she said, no one's going to want to read our book. Why would I write a book? So couple months later, we pitched the idea to a publisher. The publisher said, yeah, we'll publish that book. So there you go. You got it. There's the there's kind of the background of, of how that all got started. And uh, now we, we feel really fortunate to have the opportunity, like I said before, to be able to share some of the lessons we've learned over the past 15, 20 years. Awesome. I know that's a, a great story. And so I want to hit on a couple of topics that you, you brought up in your, in your own journey. Uh, and in understanding this. So um, one is a, a lot of us know what it's like to have, I'll use the term that kid in your classroom. And just like you said, I want to fix the kid. Uh, give me the, give me a educational assistant or a paraprofessional, maybe another term that's used. Um, give me stuff and I can, and then we can fix this kid. And so uh, let's talk for just a minute just about uh, a teacher's mindset or a school culture that could be created that can support a kid um, uh, and students to be successful in, in that whole school community and some of those, those things that you developed as you went uh, along your journey and as you, you train and work with schools. But then if we can include in that conversation maybe um, – you know, that partnership with parents and, and, and everyone in understanding that and, and changing the adult mindset. Yeah, that's, that's a lot for one question, Austin. Put <laughs> the bar high on that one. Um, the big idea really comes back to when, when we've all heard that expression, that kid, 
right? And typically, uh, Kristen and I use the term tough nugget, right? So we talk about having tough nuggets. And typically what drives the, get me an educational assistant, give me a, a different placement, get me a diagnosis, get me some help, give me a tool, something. Usually what that is driven by is a desire to have whatever behavior is happening in front of us, just stop, right? We just want it to stop because it's driving me crazy. I'm pulling out what's left of my hair. I can't take it anymore. Make it go away, make it stop. And if that's what we're trying to do, just make the behavior go away. I think we're going to end up playing a massive game of whack-a-mole. You ever been to the county fair or the, you know, the local fair where you have, there's that, that arcade game, right? Where the little mole comes out of the ground and you whack it with a stick. But as soon as it goes down, another one comes up and out of another hole, right? That's kind of the way making behaviors go away plays out. So the behavior will go away. But if you haven't addressed what's actually happening with the child, what's going on underneath the surface, a new behavior will crop up. To tr for the child to try to accomplish that need and get that need satisfied, whatever that might be. So one of the best things that we can do rather than just hyper-focus on behaviors is to create an environment that's safe for kids, that's safe for adults to be in, that's safe for children to, to be in, to connect with each other, to be whoever they are and however they are, and to just be welcomed and invited and celebrated in that environment. And that's what we refer to as a culture of safety and that's something that we really pride ourselves on as far as how to first go about this work. So I mentioned before about the mindsets. We have to be in the right frame of mind to create that safe place. And that safe place, like a nest, is a place for kids to come and learn and to develop and to grow and to stretch and to try things out and to make mistakes and to be welcomed right back in and hugged and, and it's okay. And if we can create that environment, and this is where you mentioned parents, why how parents and the school setting and the staff and the students all play a, a combined role in this, is that we all connect with each other to provide that safety and that security and that, that semblance of a nest for kids. And if our children know that their teachers, their parents, their custodial staff, the folks that drive the bus and are out on the playground and the administrators and the counselors and the, the neighborhood businesses, if they know that all those people have their backs, imagine what it would be like to walk to school, to be able to go to the park, to be able to learn, to go outside, to stay in. I mean, whatever kids want to do, they then have that sense of safety, security to try it, to do it, to be successful and to be okay. And that, that's really where all this work starts, is the, that notion of creating a nest, that culture of safety. Awesome. So, uh, again, we're, we're, there's a ton of topics that you and I can talk about uh, as yes. we go through today. Um, one of the things that, that you did talk about was, uh, was toxic stress. And, and I, I would like you to just address toxic stress a little bit and 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 what it does to the impact of learning and, and, and brain development and, and what that all can lead to uh, for a child. Sure. Well, and I'll, I'll just kind of give the, the quick and dirty version of it. Um, that you've been stressed before, right, Austin? I mean, you've had things happen in your life that cause you to, your blood pressure kind of rises and your, your, Once your or twice. Pulse. Right, every once in a while. Yeah. Well, we all have. And when we are in that mode of stress, 
are you thinking uh, are you thinking clearly about all the different things you need to do and the steps you need to take to accomplish it and are you making rational decisions and are you being um, logical in your thinking probably not most of the time when we get stressed we go into that automated automated part of our brain that that governs flight fight freeze and we act in a way to avoid or escape that danger, whatever that perception of danger, which stress represents, right? So in stressed times, we act in certain ways to try to make that go away. So flight, fight, freeze. Well, when we're, let's just say we're being chased by a bear, right? You, you run faster than you've ever run before because your brain releases cortisol, adrenaline, and then you can just book it out of there and get away from the bear. Well, as soon as you're away from the bear and you realize, okay, I'm safe, then you go back into your, what we refer to as the upstairs brain, the, the medial prefrontal cortex. That's where you think and you reason and you make sense of the world. Then you start thinking about, okay, so what's my plan for getting back to the car safely without encountering that angry mama bear again? Well, you couldn't make that plan before. You were just running. Now you're ready to, to make that plan. So for kids who are enduring lives that are laden with stress, whether no matter what it is, whether it's abuse or they move constantly or they're changing schools or a family member has passed away, whatever it might be that adds to that stress. And really we've added to the definition of things that cause toxic stress, things like struggling in school, not having access to uh, academic interventions, uh, you name it. Those things impact kids' ability to to sit, to pay attention, to focus, to learn, to complete assignments, all the things that we value in school, right? As education professionals, these are the things that we want kids to do when they come to school. And if they're having something else outside of their environment or heaven forbid, something inside the school environment that's causing them that stress, they're much less likely to be able to attend to those tasks. So I know your follow-up question is, what's the number one thing we can do about that? That's exactly what I was just talking about is creating that, that culture of safety, that nest. When we create that safe place, we invite our students to say, it's okay. The flight, fight, freeze, can, we can shut that down for a little bit and we can go back into our thinking, reasoning part of our brain, the upstairs part of our brain, so that we can attend to school tasks while we're here. And that, that's the, the quick and dirty version of the brain and stress. So, um, I, I appreciate that, that, uh, that setup for this next question, maybe. And, and my question would be, uh, in your mind, what, is, what does it look like? What does it look like, feel like when you walk into a school, uh, especially in your role as a consultant or professional developer and you walk in and, and you know, you're, you're going to look around and, and you're going to see those things, um, that indicate that this is a safe place yeah. in your mind. What, what are those tangibles? What are the things you, you would see in a school and, and what are the, some things that you implemented in your own schools that said, this is a safe place. We are, um, we are well aware of, of what you're dealing with and, and we well aware of stress and anxiety and all the things that come with that. This is a safe place. This is the nest for today. Yeah. I love that question. And, you know, it's funny, a, a lot of schools that start this journey want to go the tangible route of what posters do I put on the wall? What, what, what bulletin boards do we have up? Do we use natural lighting? Should we be playing some music? Should there be a, a, a terrarium in the hallway? You know, 
those kind of things. Should there be a sign that says this is a safe place, right? Those are all great places to start. They don't necessarily um, live in that reality of, of truly creating safety. Where safety truly comes from is having uh, kids feel safe, understanding the predictability of, of what goes on in the school, and then having consistency in practices. So when those three things are present, uh, kids start to feel a little bit safer. The number one thing that leads to that is strong interpersonal relationships. And the first thing that I look for and listen for is how do kids and adults talk to each other? How do kids and adults, what language do they use? What body language do they use? How inviting are we making ourselves for kids to want to enter our domain and, and be in our space with us? And if, if I hear language that kind of expresses the, the desire to, to keep kids here, like we want our, our, our children here with us, as opposed to the language of trying to justify why we need to kick a kid out, that's, that's a big uh, red flag when you hear that. And that's the difference between say, staying criteria and exit criteria, right? If we're, say that there's a kid misbehaving in the hallway, right? You, this is what I would look for as a visitor in a school is, are the adults coming to that kid's rescue to say, oh my gosh, this is not how we do things here. How can we, how can we make this better? Or are we watching adults come and throw the, the book at them and say, you just did this. This is your consequence. You need to go there. You need to go here. You can't do this anymore. That's what I listen for. And that's what I look for. And I tell you what, if I, if I see and hear adults that wrap their arms metaphorically around kids and say, this is not the way we do it here. Let me help you. That, that right there is the number one thing that would indicate that we've, we're working towards at the very least building a culture of safety school. What? In all transparency for myself, uh, you know, I wish that uh, um, in, in teacher prep programs in university and in college, um, some of these things were, were uh, talked about a lot more and maybe they are now um, yeah. than when I was in school, because for me, um, it probably was in my first 10 years that I wish I would have known this because it was about physical stature, loud voice, uh, you, you know what, you will do that. Yeah. And, uh, when I finished, um, um, probably at my last year as a, as a high school principal before coming to central office, I, I did, I found much more soft tones, hands in pockets. Um, I'm here to help, um, and, and things like that. And so I wish, I wish my whole career, I could have said I was, um, was that person, um, and, and I guess we, we probably all, all do, but uh, it, it's amazing to me the difference, even in myself and in my career, um, as I learned and, uh, and tried harder and, and did better at these things. Um, well, hey, Austin, if I could just address that real quick, too. I'll bet, A, you were a magnificent principal and you did amazing work. Uh, and B, the things that were in our teacher prep programs and our administrator prep programs really involved control and, and control is a myth. So we were taught and through our role modeling, my hunches, you probably had role models a lot like mine because the school institution really hasn't changed that much. Doesn't matter if it, what country you're in uh, for the last 140, 160 years. So 
our role models showed us that the way that we control kids and control the environment is being the biggest, the loudest, the strongest, the baddest. And it turns out that doesn't work. In fact, it's that whole adage of, you know, if you, the tighter you grip a handful of sand, the more sand is going to slip between your fingers, right? That, that tends to be what happens as well. And you get a lot of, you get a lot of subterfuge under the, you know, under the surface from, from staff and from parents who find ways to get around uh, the heavy handed boss. So I think that I wish I had known it early in my career as well. I wish I had known it early in my parenting. Yeah. yeah. I have, I have three kids and I did not really learn this until my first kid was old enough and I'd kind of just been not a very good parent to him for a number of years. And I tried to pick up the pieces at the end and I think we're doing much better now. Uh, but my two younger children, well, they got the benefit of better parenting. So this is, this is not something that is exclusive to schools. It's not exclusive to counseling. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's for parenting. I think it's for coaching. I think it's for, honestly, being in the grocery store with other people, if you're just walking up and down the aisles, knowing that the way you present yourself and project yourself as a human being is probably going to be mirrored by somebody else that, gosh, why would you want to be the biggest, the baddest, the toughest all the time when you can be gentle and kind and caring and open? And that, that just sets a totally different tone to any environment you find yourself in. Yeah, I, I have, uh, I'm, I'm like you, I have two uh, daughters who are graduated and gone and I have two remaining at home. They definitely get the benefit of a better dad. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Sure. So uh, let's talk for just a minute about um, three things that you brought up that I, I think are important for, for parents and for classroom teachers. And I know they're brought up in, again in, in the book that you co-authored, The Fostering Resilient Learners. Um, and we've talked a lot about it in our school division, but I would just like your take on on the the, the three F's: fight, flight, or freeze. What that kind of looks like, and and maybe a, a strategy or two of approaching a kid or or an adult that's in um, one of those uh, three F's. Sure. Well, with um, we'll we'll take them in the order that biologically we tend to revert to. So flight tends to be first, fight tends to be second, freeze tends to be third. So with flight, you know, that's the running away, chased by a bear, you, you see a bear, you, you take, take off running, right? So in a school environment, hopefully you don't have a lot of bears in your school. In a school environment, that could be um, a, a teacher calling out a student for misbehaving, or it could be as simple as asking a student a question to answer in front of uh, the rest of the class. Anything can, can cause that, uh, that feeling to enter a child. And so with flight, you could actually see kids run. They could run away. You could see kids who uh, get under the desk, climb under the table. You could see the hoods pull over their heads. You could see kids who sneak their headphones in. There are a lot of things that kids just kind of, um, they can go away from that environment somehow. So it's, what you see are, are students who kind of distance themselves from the reality of being in that moment. So whatever they can do to get out of that environment. So they, they flee from that environment. The second option is fight, which is when you've got a kid who's not afraid of a power struggle or to get into an argument with the staff. Maybe you have the kid that yells back at the teacher or cusses or, or it could just say, no, I'm not going to do it. Just stands their ground. I'm not answering that question. Never mind. Um, and that you see some of that fight response 
And then you got the freeze response, which is when kids don't know how to react to a certain situation and they know running's not an option. They know fighting's not an option. So literally kids can go into kind of a shutdown mode. And as a teacher, that can, all three of those can be really frustrating, right? Is when they flee somehow, they are telling us that this nest that you've created, I don't really feel that. I don't really feel like this is the safest place for me right now. So we want to reinforce that concept of the nest and that culture of safety. We want to make sure that that child does feel welcome in that space. And it could be a matter of having a class meeting, having a conversation with the students. It could be a one-on-one -on -one just with that child. It could be asking the child, tell me about what's going on. Tell me how you felt, what was going on in your body in that moment when you decided you needed to run. Do you know why you did that? And just surfacing some of those things to talk through them a little bit in those quiet moments when we have the opportunity to have those conversations, not in the midst of the running. So what we what we try to stay away from is in the midst of flight or fight or freeze, we just want to use the de-escalation strategies of just kind of calming down and, and letting the situation simmer and letting that the child and the adult or whoever get back into their upstairs brain so that we can have these conversations. We can't have a productive conversation when we're in our downstairs flight, fight, freeze response brain um, in that moment. So with fight, the best thing to do is to not get in the power struggle. And that's as an adult who has been reared in creating a semblance of control, it is really difficult to stay out of a power struggle because the, and this is what I hear all the time in schools working with teachers is that, well, if I let this kid talk to me that way, if I let the kid dig in their heels and say no, and then let them get away with it, well, then all the kids are going to do that and they're all going to want to get away with it. And the reality is that is not the case unless you have created in your classroom total chaos. The only time that other kids take advantage of it is if they don't see the benefit in playing along and doing the things that we ask them to do in that if we have built a, a safe, a culture of safety based on relationships and respect and trust, and we've got all those things in place, if a student's having a hard time, everyone in that room, including the student, as soon as he or she gets back into the upstairs brain, will acknowledge the fact that that's an aberration. That's not the way we do things. So we're going to talk our way through what just happened. And we're going to do whatever we can to help make sure it doesn't happen again. All the other students in the class know that's not the way we do it here. So you will very rarely find that hordes upon hordes of kids will start following that child's lead and engaging in that behavior just for kicks. What you'll find are the tremendous majority of kids do well if they can. And if we create an environment in which they feel safe, they can and they will. Does that help a little bit? It does a ton. And I love the statement. And I think uh, Ross Green uh, also uses that statement. Kids do well if they can. And I, I love that statement. Yep, that's where we got it to. And yeah. Dr. Green is a, a big influencer in our work as well. Oh, yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, one of the things that um, you, you talked about with our staff and I, um, expect, well, with our educational assistants and maybe for a broader audience is the, the idea of needs versus behaviors. And I know that's addressed in a couple of, uh, um, of the books that you've been involved in writing as well. And I just wondered if you could take just some time um, here and just uh, 
spend a few minutes talking about needs versus behaviors and and uh, the new three R's and where that all fits into this uh, conversation that we've had today. Sure, sure. So this kind of speaks to the, the idea of playing whack-a-mole with behaviors. So when kids are presenting with certain behaviors that drive us batty, rather than just try to make the behavior go away, it's our responsibility as, as professionals, as educators, to try to figure out, okay, why? Why is this happening? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? What are you trying to communicate to us? How can we help you? And it ends up being the, uh, typically, children have one of four primary unmet needs that drive their behaviors. So one is basic physical needs. And I know, Austin, that you can, can say with 100% certainty that there has been a day that you were hangry. There's been a time, right? (laughs) Or you got up and you didn't have your cup of coffee. And so the morning was not going to off to a good start until you had that cup of coffee, right? And so, or if you didn't get a good night's sleep last night, sometimes you come into work a little bit cranky or a little bit disheveled, right? Yeah. Those kind of things are real for us as adults and they're real for our kids. If they're not getting enough sleep, if they've got a headache, if they're not feeling good, all those things can impact their ability to function in a school environment or in any environment. So that's one, is basic physical needs. Two is emotional needs. So students are having a hard time managing their emotions if they get overly excited, if they're really enthusiastic about this and can't settle down, or if they're really sad or feeling anxious about something, or they're angry at a classmate, all those kind of things can impact their ability, again, to do the things that they need to do to be successful in school. So you got basic physical needs, you've got uh, emotional needs, You've got students that have relational needs, and these are the the kids who thrive when they are connecting with an adult. So I have a good relationship with you. So when I see you and I'm in your presence, I'm great. But as soon as you look at me like you're angry at me or you tell me I can't sit there, I have to sit over there right now and stop talking, then I think, oh gosh, you're mad at me. And then I'm going to have a really hard time with functioning for the rest of the day because I'm not sure how our relationship is going. Does that make sense? And then the fourth category is control needs. So sometimes we have students who just need to be in control because so much of their lives is out of their control. So who they're with, where they're going, what they're doing, all that is determined by somebody else. And we've got kids who just say, I need to be in charge of something, anything, anything I can possibly be in charge of. So if you tell me to come sit down at the carpet, I'm going to stand up in the back of the room just because I can And if we as professionals understand that our students and our children are behaving in ways to try to get their needs met, as opposed to acting and behaving in ways to try to uh, throttle our our educational process for the day or to try to drive us crazy, then we're much more likely to stop. And like I said, that example of wrapping our arms around a kid in the hallway is to say, what's going on? What do you need? How can I help you? How can I make this better? Awesome. Awesome. Now, there's a line. It's in the introduction of, of your book um, that I love. And it, and it says this, that our, that our mission in schools, education is the gatekeeper to choice in life. And uh, I really love that line. And I just want you to just talk about it from your perspective of that, you know, the gatekeeper to choice. And, and what does that mean to you? Obviously, that it meant something to you because it's in, in the book. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> well. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that you noticed that and called that out. We, um, you know, I'm I'm not the the person who's going to tell you that every kid needs to go to college and every kid needs an advanced degree. What I am going to tell you is that our world is kinder to people who do have 
more education, that opportunities, doors open through education. So I am a believer that we can get educated in school. We can get educated outside of school. Uh, we can continue in education throughout our entire lives. It's more of the mindset of education as it is the institution of schooling. And I think that's something that has really uh, become really, really clear during the pandemic over the past 12 months or so is that schooling has changed quite a bit. I mean, there's been a, a tremendous um, change in the way we do schooling, whether it's in-person or online or hybrid or what, whatever you might call it, that schooling has changed, but education hasn't changed. The idea of what we're trying to do as, as you and I, the village elders, what we're trying to do is to create an environment for our young people to grow up, to become the next generation of leaders in our communities, to be happy, healthy, safe, productive, kind, uh, conscious. And if we can do that, that, that hasn't changed. And we can do that in school. We can do that in the community. We can do that in our homes. And I think it's imperative that we make it a little bit of a distinction between education and schooling, that schooling is a part of education and education itself is a much broader, much larger idea that yes, does afford opportunities and choice. And um, I guess the, the golden door of life opens as we remain educated and as we pursue opportunities to grow in our educational experience. So that's kind of how I, I interpret it as we write it. I know a lot of school people take it to mean schooling. And obviously as a school person, I'm, I'm a big fan of schooling as well um, when it's done well and effectively. So. Awesome. Well, I, um, you know, we've talked, we talk about a, a lot of things and we've addressed a lot in, in, in this short, really about 30 minutes. Um, and, you know, uh, when we talk about um, toxic stress and we talk about the, the, the three F's and needs and behaviors and, and understanding all of those things, the very end of this book that you, that I've addressed or referred to a few times, um, you talk about avoiding burnout. Hmm. And so I wouldn't mind you finishing our, our conversation today about, you know, you're going to do all this. You're going to be your very best. You're going to um, change your mindset and you're going to work on all these skills. But, but how do we as, as educators and, and, you know, the last year has been really difficult, but what are your, some of your thoughts on avoiding burnout and, and how we can be our very best for our kids every day? Yeah, I, I appreciate that you asked that because um, one of the things that, that I have been researching quite a bit lately is, is what I refer to as authentic self-care. And I, I've had so many educators who have, and I see it on social media all the time. I face one more workshop on self-care. I swear. Um, the, the thing about self-care is that there's two different ways to look at it really, uh, that help us with burnout. And I'll, I'll talk more specifically about burnout in a minute, but self-care is definitely a part of it. One is when we're stressed and when we're overwhelmed, sometimes we just need to do something to let some steam off, right? We need to go do something to allow us to uh, just decompress a little bit. So sometimes it's go exercise, go for a run. Sometimes it's listen to, you know, hard rock music. Sometimes it's listen to calm, soothing relaxation music and meditate and um, call a friend. You, whatever those things are that we do and bubble baths and bonbons, right? Just to, just to get that stress out of our system, right? Okay. 
The other is what do we do to strengthen ourselves from the inside so the stress doesn't have the same impact on us? And that's really what's going to help us with burnout is engaging in the types of behaviors and habitualizing the types of behaviors that strengthen us from the inside so that the stresses don't over, overwhelm us. The reality is in education, there is never a shortage of stressors. There's not, there's not going to be a day that you think, man, today was an easy day. Today was just kind of laid back and chill at work. That was nice. That's not the way education works. So the stresses are going to keep hitting us and they're going to keep coming. What we need to do is equip ourselves and be ready for that. So some of the things that I'll, and I'll just hit a, a handful of my favorites to habitualize things like exercise. So if we exercise on a regular basis, four, five, six days a week, and we're pumping our bodies and throwing oxygen in our brain, all that actually strengthens us to the point that we can withstand a little bit more stress over the course of our day. If we do and practice deep breathing exercises, it has been proven to show that the more we practice those, those deep breathing, so four square breathing or that breathing where you truly uh, get your diaphragm going. And because when we're stressed, we breathe fast, faster and, and more shallow. But when we're relaxed, we can practice that deep breathing so that in times of stress, we automatically go into our deep breathing patterns, which enables more space in our medial free prefrontal cortex to handle whatever the challenge is that's in front of us in that moment. If we don't, then we have to think intentionally about our breathing, which means we're allocating our mental energy to breathing instead of allocating our mental energy towards whatever it is that's challenging us. Hopefully that makes sense. So habitualizing things like that, eating healthy, you know, doing things that challenge our brains, that kind of stuff. A couple other things that truly support us with burnout are things like setting boundaries. And I know that personally during the pandemic, as my life moved fully virtual, that there was no longer a start time and a finish time to the workday. And I, a lot of educators that I've talked to had the same experience where all of a sudden they're getting texts and phone calls and emails all hours of the day and night. And there's no, there's no boundary. And so if, if we can establish the boundaries and then communicate and share those boundaries with our colleagues, friends, families, parents, you name it, 6 PM to 6 AM, I'm not doing work stuff. I'm not, you, you can text me if you want to, you can email me, you can call, I won't answer. And that is just going to have to wait till the next morning because I put my phone in a drawer and I close it and I'm going to move on. So that's one thing to do is to set those boundaries and to, to truly be able to say, okay, I'm done working. I'm, I'm done doing that school stuff for the day. Um, another is to say no. And I'm a big believer that no is an acceptable answer that we tend to believe that we can take on more and we can be on that committee and we can be a participant in this. And yes, I will be happy to do that. And I can cover that as well. And the reality is, no, you can't. And you can't do a really good job at all those things. So we have to prioritize which ones are we going to do a really good job of? Which ones are we just going to get done? And which ones are we going to say, you know, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. The answer is no. And we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay. So a mantra like no is an acceptable answer is something that I, I advocate for folks that I coach all the time is to embrace that mindset of when you're asked, hey, can you come and do this? Can you help me with this project? If you don't feel like that is going to be in your collective best interest and you're going to be able to give your 110%, you're still going to be able to do the things that you have on your plate already, politely say, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And that has to be okay. 
So little things like that, habitualizing those behaviors, getting inside your own head to be able to kind of just be in charge of what's going on with you and around you, I think will go a long ways to um, equipping yourself to handle the stresses and then to stave off that burnout. I made it sound easy, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, it's just like that. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's awesome. I I really appreciate it. All those things, you know, Austin, all those things take practice and they take time to develop. And we... We have to be okay with with just giving ourselves grace and and loving ourselves enough to say, you can practice saying no. Practice saying no and see how it goes. And there will be times that you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to say no. And you go into an an interaction and you say, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And the person's going to say, oh, come on, please, I really need your help. And you're like, okay, fine. And that's a learning lesson for you that you have to know how you're going to handle those situations when they come up. So it's not as easy as I make it sound. It's just, it's something that I think is important for all of us to be cognizant of and to try. Yeah. And, and, and included in that, cause I agree with you is then you also have to give yourself permission when you mess up to not worry about it. Cause you know, we get in these routines of exercise and I'm going to do it five days a week. Then you miss a day and you're like, Oh, <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> right. let that become the stressor either. So, and then uh, you just tell yourself, you know what, today was a rest day. Yeah, that's right. And, it's okay that I took a rest day and I feel good about taking a rest day and you, and you give yourself some positive affirmation and you're ready to move forward. Yeah. Well, um, Pete, I really appreciate you coming on and, and being with us today and, and being part of, uh, the, the, I'll say team Westwind, uh, yeah, and being involved in our, in our staff. And I know you've done professional development with a number of our schools and I just wanted to share a, a really have you share a, a brief part of your message with all of our um, stakeholders and that's who this podcast will go out to. So again, we, we thank uh, you as a classroom teacher and as a school principal that you've been in and now involved in the professional development and, and consulting part of, of education. So uh, thank you so much for your time and I appreciate it. Absolutely, Austin. And I appreciate the invitation again and thank you and to all the the folks listening out there, stay strong, be strong, and uh, wish you all the best as you continue the journey. All right. Thanks. Good luck with everything. Stay healthy.